If you would look with me in your Bible this morning to the book of Philippians to chapter 3. Philippians and in chapter 3, I'd like for us to read verse 7 and verse 8. And our subject is the knowledge of Christ Jesus, meaning our knowledge of Him. The knowledge of Christ Jesus. Philippians in chapter 3. Now read verse 7 and verse 8. But what things were gained to me, those I counted lost, for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ. In studying the life of the Apostle Paul, what he has written for us that we have in the scripture, we learn that Paul was never satisfied with his present knowledge of Jesus Christ. And I'll add, neither should we be. We should never be satisfied with just what we know now, but rather have a desire to learn and to know more and more about Jesus. That seemed to be the heartfelt desire of the Apostle Paul. And again, I'll say that I think is the desire of every regenerated individual to know more of Jesus. But read verse 7 and 8 once again. But what things were gained to me, those I counted lost for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ. The excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. I'll mention this. Do not expect to find knowledge of Jesus Christ separate and apart from the Word of God and the illumination of the Holy Spirit of God. <clears throat> Many look to other things. Many believe other things concerning Jesus. We look to the Word of God to find out about Jesus. I'm going to Mention or just read John chapter 5 and in verse 39 where Jesus in speaking to some said, Search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. I've read, and maybe it is true, that the force of the first words of John 5, 39 was, you do search the scriptures. And those that he was speaking unto did search the scriptures. It's not so much a command, but stating you already searched the scriptures because in them you think you have eternal life. And the implication is 
And all the while you're rejecting me. But in speaking of the scriptures, Jesus said, They are they which testify of me. It is the scriptures where we learn about Jesus Christ. All that you and I will ever know about Jesus Christ until he comes again is found in the written word of God. There are no further revelations. Do not believe those who say they have a revelation and Jesus has spoken unto them like many of the huskers today do. It's not uncommon for preachers to say, well, the Lord told me this. That's not written in the Word of God. It's a lie. What we know is in the Word of God. Paul's desire again in Philippians in chapter 3, and I'm going to read uh, verse 8 again. He said, Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss. Notice, nothing else was of any value equal to this. For the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. Notice in verse verse 9, And be found in Him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Jesus Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. Then He said that I might know Him. Paul said that I may know Him. Just consider for a moment who it is that did write these words. These are the words of a saved man, even an apostle of Jesus Christ. But yet Paul had this desire to know Him, meaning certainly to have a fuller, more expanded knowledge of Jesus Christ. As I was thinking about this knowing Him and the knowledge of Christ and you and I learning more and more about Jesus Christ, what a task that is to just study and learn of the life and the person, the deity and the work of Jesus Christ. I wrestled trying to find a word, a single word, that would describe the person of Jesus Christ and the different aspects of Him and of His life. And the only word I could come up with is anomaly. He is an anomaly. And an anomaly, as you know, is, is something that is contrary to what is normal or what is expected. The seed of the woman, the Messiah, had been promised for generations and generations. And when he did come, he certainly was not what was expected. He was totally different than what the people did expect. The man Christ Jesus 
is not a normal man. There is nothing ordinary about Jesus Christ. There is a complexity about the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's really a study that is as infinite as the infinite Son of God is. Turn with me to Isaiah, if you would. Isaiah, the prophet, did bring this out, I think, as much as any of the writers of the Scriptures as he was prophesying of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Isaiah and in chapter 9, I'm going to read verse 6 and verse 7. And as we read, just consider the complexity of Jesus Christ. Isaiah did write in Isaiah 9, 6, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it, to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. Now if there's any scripture that I'm aware of which reveals the complexity of the person of Jesus Christ, this would be it. You just look at all the things that are written in verse 6 of Isaiah chapter 9. You could spend your rest of your days here upon this earth searching and studying just what is written there and you would never run out of something to do. Go back to chapter 7 of Isaiah. Isaiah had already prophesied and about a great miracle concerning him. In Isaiah chapter 7 and in verse 14, Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. And when you've come to that word, behold, pay close attention. Behold. A virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now this in itself and by itself is an anomaly. It is something far beyond the ordinary what would normally be expected. A sign from God. A sign from God. What would the sign be indicating? Well, there's something unusual here. Here is a sign foretelling this one will be the promised one. The Messiah. Behold, a virgin shall conceive. That's out of the ordinary. That's something that is not expected. But not only shall a virgin shall conceive, but 
She's going to bear a son. And this son, shall be, his name shall be called Emmanuel, God with us. That's certainly out of the ordinary. Nothing ordinary about that. God in the flesh. I go back to chapter 9. And I want to look at verse 6. And certainly there's more there than I can cover. I'll just touch on different points. But I want to mention this. Neither the Holy Spirit nor Isaiah was confused in this matter. And I mention that because of what is written. Isaiah, by divine inspiration, refers in Isaiah 9, 6 to Jesus as a child. Then he refers to him as a son. Then he refers to him as the everlasting father. Then he refers to him as the mighty God. I try to put all of those things together. A child, a son, and they all, all these different names here, he'll be called. He is also the everlasting father. This child that will be brought forth by the virgin is the mighty God. Again, not, it's not ordinary happening here. In 1 Timothy chapter 3 and in verse 16, I'm just going to mention this. Paul did write of a great mystery of godliness. Well, I think in Isaiah 9 and in verse 6, we also have a great mystery of godliness. A great mystery. And again, we may know in part, some of us may learn more than others, but we'll never grasp this in our lifetime, what is written here. And, and the great part about Isaiah chapter 9 and in verse 6 is found in the first three words. Unto us. Unto us. That has special meaning to the people of God. This is unto us. This child, this son that's going to come forth of the Virgin Mary is unto us. <coughs> unto us a child is born. Unto us a child is born. Born of Mary we know of the virgin birth. But the, the God, great God and Savior, the creator and the sustainer of all things, is a child born of a woman. And it's for us. It's for us. Again, just try to get a glimpse of the one that left the glory of heaven, found himself in the womb of a woman, went through this childbirth. It was all for us. It was for us. For us. Not only is a child born, but we also read here that this child being conceived of the Holy Spirit in the womb of Mary and being born is in fact 
the son that was given. These two things go, go hand in hand. A child is born, and it says also a son is given. And through all of this, keep in mind those words unto us. A son is given. Who is he given to? Unto us. Unto to us. He came into this world as an infant child. He was son, but a son that was given. Probably one of the first Bible verses you learn, other than the verse that says Jesus wept, some of us kind of cheated on that one, was John 3.16. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Well, we're told here in Isaiah 9 and in verse 6 that a Son is given. We often think about the great sacrifice that Jesus Christ made when He suffered and died for our sins. And I think we ought to give as much consideration to the great sacrifice of God the Father when He gave up His Son. When He gave up His Son. Again, it's something we can't even think of rightly. That the eternal Father would give His only begotten Son. He made a great sacrifice in sending His Son into this world. Isaiah 9 and in verse 6 tells us, Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and we're told the government shall be upon his shoulder. All governments of the world are subject unto Jesus Christ. As we view world events, it may look like things are happening at random, that things are not under the control of God, that maybe things are just going by course, but the government shall be upon his shoulder. He's able to raise up governments, put down governments. Raise up kings, put down kings. All things are in his hand. The government shall be upon his shoulder. But I think another Government is really what is in mind. It is the spiritual government of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look in the book of John again, if you would. And I'm going to come back to Isaiah. But in, in John, in chapter 18, verse 36, John 18 and verse 36, Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. There is another kingdom, there is another government that is not physical, it is not geographical, you cannot see it, it's not on the map, but it's the greatest kingdom and government that's ever existed. And Jesus said, it's my kingdom. It's my kingdom. When I, I look at the things of God, and I'm going to go to 
a verse Brother Justice used this morning, Matthew chapter 28 and verse 18. Jesus said there, and you're familiar with this, all power, meaning authority, all power, all authority is given unto me in heaven and in earth. The government of the kingdom of God rests solely upon the shoulder of the Lord Jesus Christ. All authority has been given unto him. And in this kingdom of which he is the king, which he is the supreme ruler, the administration of his government that rests upon his shoulder consists of him ruling in the hearts of men. Now that's a greater feat than Russia invading Ukraine or Ukraine uh, resisting as they have. The Lord ruling in the hearts of men. That is how his kingdom is. And I look back to Isaiah again. Isaiah and in chapter 9, as we consider in verse 6, the government shall be upon his shoulder again. It rests solely upon him. Now I'll mention this, the government, the administration, the sustaining of the kingdom of God is not dependent upon you and I. It rests solely upon the shoulder of Jesus Christ. And I read in verse 7 of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. There shall be no end. Now there's two basic meanings, and I think both of them are true here, of the increase of his government his government is going to be unending. It will be perpetual forever and forever. But it's not only speaking about duration. Of his, his government that rests upon his shoulders is without limits. It has no bounds. Nothing can limit it. Nothing can hinder it. There are no bounds unto it. It will last forever and forever. The government in verse 6 shall be upon his shoulder. And then we read in Isaiah 9 and in verse 6. His name shall be called. Now this is not necessarily meaning that his name is going to be called by men the things that are listed here. It does not necessarily mean that men will call him wonderful, that men will call him counselor, the mighty God or the everlasting Father or the Prince of Peace. But his unique person and personality, his deity and his work, answers to everything that is listed here. To everything that is listed. And the first that is listed, his name, and again keep in mind 
a name indicates an individual, a person. His name shall be called Wonderful. Wonderful. Full of wonder is what that actually means. There is a wonder, there is an amazement in both the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's something wonderful about his doctrine, about his teaching. There's something wonderful about his sacrificial work for us. It is a wonder. It's a miracle in itself, but it is just full of wonder. His name shall be called Wonderful. If you're saved, you do not know anyone any more wonderful than Jesus Christ. The most wonderful person ever walked this earth is Jesus Christ. He was full of wonders. He was a man of wonders because he was Emmanuel, God with us. Notice the next one in verse 6. Not only shall his name be called Wonderful, but also Counselor. Many Bible scholars put the word Wonderful and Counselor together. The Wonderful Counselor. Well, that would be true. It makes no difference to me whether the words are separate or together. They have basically the very, very same meaning. Counselor. A counselor to men, also one involved in the counsel of God. In the counsel of God. Surely in that eternal counsel of God and the everlasting covenant of grace, Jesus was a counselor. He took part in that. Notice this, and I'm sure you're aware of it, but I'm going to refer to it. Genesis in chapter 1 and in, in verse 26, we get just a, a, a glimpse here. We're able to, to peek inside the counsel of God. Then the Trinity in Genesis 1 in verse 26, God said, let us make man in our image. It was a council that took place. It was not just the decision or action of one individual, but it was let us, let us. If you look over to chapter 11 of Genesis, and I'm going to read verse 5 through verse 7, but it has to do with the Tower of Babel. Genesis 11 and in verse 5. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men builded. And the Lord said, Behold, the people is, is one. And they have all one language. And this they begin to do. And now nothing will be restrained from them which they have imagined to do. Go to, let us, Go down and there confound their language. 
There was communication and counsel even in the Godhead. In the Godhead. But I look further concerning this. The counsel of Jesus Christ to His people. The counsel of Jesus Christ to His churches. Let me point out one specific account. I'm going to the book of of Revelation to chapter 3. In Revelation and in chapter 3, the church of the Laodiceans was drastically out of gospel order. They had strayed. Verse 18, Jesus said, I counsel thee. I counsel thee. In all of the letters that he wrote that are recorded in Revelation to the seven churches which are in Asia, you have the counsel of Jesus Christ to his churches. His name shall be called Counselor, and if you would, the Wonderful Counselor. Jesus, the Word made flesh. Again, it's easy just to read that, but just consider. He is the Word that was with God and was God, but He was made flesh. And in coming down into this world, He brought with Him the Word of God. God gave Him a specific commandment, what He should say, what He should speak. Never been a greater counselor than this. Even His enemies had to admit, never a man spake like this man. Nobody ever has, has talked like, like this man. You want to look Matthew chapter 7 and in verse, verse 29 we're told he taught with authority and not as the scribes. Nobody ever talked like this man. He brought the word of God. He brought the word of God. Again, what a wonderful thing this is. In Isaiah again, and I'll go on. His name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God. I don't know if anyone who was there, when they saw that baby in a manger... Stop to think, this is the mighty God. This is the mighty God. I said he's an anomaly. Something very unusual. Consider the mighty God born into this world. Some interpret those words, the mighty God, to mean God the Mighty One. And I would not dispute that at all. Jesus, the Mighty God. We know He is Jehovah. He is Jehovah, the self-sustaining God. 
and all through his earthly life, just by him walking among men, what he had to say, what he did in his miracles and wonders, all of it just gave proof this man is the mighty God. This man must be more than an ordinary man. There's nothing ordinary about him. This is the mighty God. Paul in Titus chapter 2 and in verse 13 referred to him as the great God. The great God. Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. Not only, and again Brother Justice brought this out in the Bible study, not only is he the the Counselor, He is the Mighty God, Almighty God, able to carry out all of His will and His counsel. Never purpose one thing He was not able to accomplish. The Mighty God. In Isaiah 9 and in verse 6, again, this just shows the complexity of this person. He is called the everlasting Father. And the words could be understood, Father of eternity. The everlasting Father. 1 Timothy chapter 1 and in verse 17, the King eternal, immortal. The everlasting Father. Now he is not the first person of the Godhead. Some might want to confuse that. God the Father is not God the Son. And God the Son is not God the Father. Some have the idea of the Trinity and the Godhead. That it's it's like water. Sometimes it manifests itself as a liquid. Sometimes a solid, sometimes as a gas or steam. They have that idea of the Godhead. Sometimes God is the Father. Sometimes God is the Son. Sometimes God is the Holy Spirit. That is not so. There's three distinct persons in the Godhead. That being so, what does it mean here when it says this child, this Son that is given is the everlasting Father. It speaks of His federal headship of all that the Father had given Him. Adam is the federal head of the human race. He is our first Father. If you want to trace your genealogy back, you need to spend a little time You go back to your father, your grandfather, your great-grandfather, your great-great-grandfather. How many greats you got to get back to Adam? He's your father. He's the father of the human race. He's the federal head of the human race. By the same token, Jesus Christ is the federal head of all that the Father had given him. Hold your place and look in 1 Corinthians in chapter 15. 
in 1 Corinthians and in chapter, chapter 15, if you look at verse 45, Paul mentions Adam, the first man. But he also mentions the last Adam. That's Jesus Christ. Again, federal headship. And I'll point this out because sometimes I hear people refer to him as the second Adam. That's not biblically correct. He's the last. If you only view him as the second, you might be expecting a third. But there's not going to be a third. He's the last. He's the last Adam. The everlasting Father. In the same sense that Adam is the father of the human race, Jesus Christ is the father of all that the Father has given him. In Adam, all die. In Christ, shall all be made alive. Where does that life come from? Jesus said, I am the life. I am the life. He is the originator of our life. Not to discount the work of the Holy Spirit, but Jesus said, I am the life. And no one receives life, spiritual life, separate and apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. Isaiah 9 and in verse 6, the last that is mentioned in verse 6, he is the prince of peace. He is the prince of peace. In the same manner as in Acts chapter 3 and in verse 15, he is referred to as the prince of life. He is the prince. He is the ruler of it. And Jesus is not only the author of peace, the source of peace, he is our peace. And he made peace for unto us. He made peace for us through the blood of his cross. He is our peace. I'm going to John chapter 14. John and in chapter 14, and there's several places we could read. I'll limit this to verse 27. John 14, verse 27, Jesus said, Peace I leave with you. Jesus said, My peace I give unto you. Not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. The Prince of Peace said, Peace, I leave with you. I leave with you. It's sort of like a last will and testimony. Here's what I'm going to leave you. I'm going away, but I'm going to leave you this. I leave you peace. Peace, I leave with you. Then he said, It's my peace. I don't know how to explain that. My peace. Peace that comes from him, but again, he is peace. And he said, my peace 
I give unto you. And it's not the same peace that the world is able to give. Sometimes we might find peace in things of the world, but it's, it's temporary. It won't last. It's nothing true peace about it. But Jesus said, my peace I give unto you. I'm going to read our text again. And again, I have not even scratched the surface of what's in Isaiah chapter 9. But notice, if you would, verse 6 and verse 7. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Will the Royce come and lead us if you would? <laughs> <laughs> 